On a cold morning on the grassy steps near the Carolyn River, an old woman was awakened by a trembling in her bones. The sun hadn't risen yet and the rest of her party was still asleep. The trembling was getting stronger. She put her ear to the earth, then gasped. Her fears were confirmed. Raiders were coming. All 15 members of the clan turned to their leader, a young man of only 19 or so. He had to make a hard decision. Everyone knew what the raiders wanted, to kill the males and kidnap the women. This was the most common way for a man to get a wife on the steps. The young leader himself was the product of such an occurrence. His father had kidnapped his mother 19 years earlier. This young man's name was Temujin Borogin, and he was no stranger to hardship. His father had been killed when he was a boy, and he had spent most of his adolescence as a slave, and only recently reunited with his family. In the last two years, since he was 17, he had spent as an indentured servant to his in-laws in order to earn his wife's hand in marriage in the traditional, albeit less common way. After Temujin married, an old comrade of his father, a warlord named Ong Khan, had offered Temujin a subordinate leadership role in his army. But Temujin had declined. He, in 19 years, had already seen enough violence. As the new head of a family, he just wanted to spend the rest of his days in peace. But this wasn't to be. Though it pained his heart, he had to make the practical decision. His people, the Mongols, did not have lofty ideals such as chivalry. On the harsh desert steppes where survival was never guaranteed, one had to be realistic. There was only one way to survive. He left his new bride and the other women to slow down the raiders and made his escape with his mother and brothers. Over the next few days, he and his family kept evading the raiders, who were still on their tail. Typical raider policy was to murder all the males to prevent future revenge. So for days, they kept just out of reach of the raiders, until eventually they reached the forested mountain, Burkhan Khaldun. This was a sacred mountain to the Mongols. Unlike other steppe tribes that had converted to Christianity, Islam, or Buddhism, Mongols had retained their old beliefs in animism. Temujin was practical, but he wasn't cold. Allegedly, he openly cried about his lost wife, a huge taboo to Mongol men. And according to legend, Temujin spent three days praying to the mountain and asking for guidance on how to heal the pain in his heart. Allegedly, he got his answer in the form of a choice. He came across the mouths of three major rivers that all originated in the mountain. Each river led to a different land and a different path in life. The first river, the Carolan, took him back southeast to the grassy plains where his bride had just been abducted. He had moved his family there because the fertile grounds promised uh, an abundant life. And he could go back there, and he could find a new wife. But no matter how many animals or future wives he acquired, there would always be a risk of them being taken by a stronger man. The second river, the Onan, led to the desert where he was born. Food was scarce there. He was much less likely to be raided there because no one in the desert had anything worth stealing. But the only way he'd ever get a new wife would be by kidnapping one, since no family would willingly give their daughter to such a poor man. The third river, the Tu'ul, led back to his father's comrade, Ong Khan. Following that river meant choosing the path of war, to become the one who is feared, not the one who fears. This was the only way to reclaim his beloved wife. So Temujin chose the third option. With the help of his adopted uncle, Ong Khan, Temujin led a force of warriors to track down the raiders and eventually reunite with his wife. Temujin and his uncle's army set fire to the raiders' camp. Temujin's wife ran away immediately, not wanting to be kidnapped yet again. But according to legend, she heard his voice calling her name in the dark. 
he appeared before her on a majestic white horse and scooped her up in his arms. She would never be at risk of kidnapping again. Because their lives would never be the same. Temujin could no longer return to the pacifistic life of a herder. He had entered the kill-or-be-killed hierarchy of steppe warriors. He now had enemies. If he left the warpath, his enemies would surely come kill him out of revenge. So Temujin only had one option to ensure the well-being of his family. To master the art of war. To become the one that is feared on the desert steppes. Temujin went on to be one of the more popular generals under his adopted uncle. Though not initially the strongest in terms of military might, he developed a reputation for upholding honor and rewarding virtue even towards his enemies. This incentivized loyalty and encouraged enemy soldiers to defect to his camp. Pretty soon he consolidated the Mongols, who traditionally had been split into disparate groups. Then he eventually conquered all the other tribes in the steppes, taking on the title of Chinggis Khan, which means universal ruler. Most of what we know about him comes from Persian historians whose writing was later anglicized to be spelled as Genghis Khan. In 21 years of conquest, Genghis Khan conquered 13.5 million square kilometers of land, which comes out to 70 square kilometers per hour. He conquered twice as much land as any other man in history, and his empire, at its height, would span from Vietnam all the way to Hungary, and longitudinally as wide as India to Siberia. We briefly mentioned Genghis Khan in a prologue on the winter effect because the great Khan was possibly the most genetically successful man in history. Genghis Khan sired over 1,000 children in his lifetime, mostly through war brides. Estimates place that one in eight Asian men are directly related to the Khan. 24 million people in the world carry the surname Khan due to the influence of his conquest. But beyond sheer numbers, his descendants would go on to be the top of hierarchies around the world. The Yuan Dynasty in China the Golden Horde in modern-day Russia, the Ilkhanate of the Persian Empire in Afghanistan, the Mughal Empire in India. The Khan's last ruling descendant, Alim Khan, remained in power all the way till 1920 in Uzbekistan when the Soviets removed him from power. But even greater than the impact of his genes were the impact of his memes. A meme is any idea that is passed on through imitation. If a gene is a unit of nature, then a meme is a unit of culture. And as we'll see throughout our series, Memes are what drives the evolution of both warfighting and civilization itself. Genghis Khan originated ideas of diplomacy, battlefield innovations, governance, and international law that has bled into today. His conquest connected trade routes between the East and West that further allowed spreading and mixing of art and architecture styles and engineering innovations. He redrew the boundaries of the world, connecting disparate kingdoms and principalities to essentially create the countries of China, Russia, and India. The world we know today would be a very different place had Temujin Borjan not become Genghis Khan. The great Khan was so able to impact the world both genetically and mimetically because he was particularly adept at a certain kind of male-male competition, the ultimate form of human competition, war. The History of Man podcast, episode one, Sticks and Stones. Our prologue on testosterone and the winter effect illustrated how maleness originated from competition. Throughout nature, objective male traits are most present when two or more entities are competing for a scarce resource, whether two sperm racing to an egg or two gorillas fighting over a mate. The most competitive form of human male competition is war. Therefore, in order to understand the history of man, the history of masculinity, we need to look at the history of war fighting. This is not a comment on the ethics of war or whether certain masculine traits or perceptions are good or bad. 
Our goal in the series is to illustrate what masculinity is and the natural and cultural factors that have caused it to be as such. Now, of course, masculinity includes more than just violent competition, and in different episodes in the series, we intend to cover the other aspects of masculinity, such as the instinct of fatherhood and other pro-social behaviors. But in order to build our understanding from the ground up, we need to start with the more primal functions of testosterone. Because at the structural level, the history of maleness is a history of violence. Age by age, masculine traits, tendencies, and cultural expectations have evolved mainly and primarily in response to the style of warfare at that time. We opened our episode with Genghis Khan for two reasons. As mentioned, he was one of the most genetically successful and culturally impactful men in history because of his warfighting ability. And two, Genghis Khan's rise to power in the 12th century AD illustrates somewhat of a condensed montage of the evolution of warfighting, from his humble, almost Stone Age nomadic beginnings on the steppe, all the way to the advent of gunpowder. In this series, we're going to follow the cutting edge of military innovation, both in weapons technology and in the psychology of killing. Era by era, we'll show how economic, technological, and cultural factors shape warfighting, and therefore the memes surrounding masculinity. And our story begins with some of the earliest Homo sapiens. The first evidence of group conflict amongst modern humans, Homo sapiens, goes back about 30,000 years to cave paintings in modern-day Europe and Western Asia depicting small battle scenes. Just to be clear, that these are this is not saying that this is the first time that humans had group conflict, but this is the first record of it. It's certainly the first time, as far as we archaeologists could find, that this has been documented. The paintings on the walls are a little bit more than stick figure drawings, which shows you the level of artistic advancement at the time as well. And they basically show two groups of men fighting with bows and arrows and throwing spears. But just this tells us quite a lot, because first we need to look at the weapons. As we'll see throughout the series, weapons technology often correlates with the fighting psychology of that era. So the first thing we notice in this early documentation of some sort of battle is that they're fighting with hunting tools, which makes sense, right? They didn't, uh, they didn't necessarily create the weapons for war fighting because that wasn't the norm yet. Um, but they, they had these weapons, they had these tools to, of course, take down larger animals. The throwing spear was first used, according to the, the data we have now, um, by anatomically modern Homo sapiens as far back as 80,000 years ago. There is evidence that other human species, such as Neanderthals, use spears as far back as 280,000 years ago. So, one of the oldest weapons of all time. Bows and arrows, on the other hand, are believed to have appeared around 40,000 years ago, and they're purely a Homo sapiens invention. Neanderthals did not use bows and arrows. But these weapons, spears and bows, offer a dual purpose to the combatant. And there's a reason why they're used as uh, hunting implements, obviously. The first, obviously, is greater mechanical power, right? Human anatomy doesn't really lend itself to lethality. Uh, it's very hard for um, a human to take down, I mean, really any animal. A small game is usually too fast for a human being to just grab, although there's certainly people who are, who are quick enough to grab rabbits. And large game, you know, humans, even even our Paleolithic ancestors, who are certainly much stronger than the average man, could not take down a bison, right? Could not take down anything much bigger. We need these weapons. And the same thing goes for fighting another human. Even though humans are relatively fragile uh, for an animal our size, uh, and, you know, anybody who's trained in martial arts knows there are many ways to kill a person. It's actually quite hard. Unless you have a mar high level martial arts training, it's quite hard to actually kill another person with your bare hands. 
But it's not just because of physical ability, right? Because as we just said, humans are fairly vulnerable. Two men get into a fight. Sometimes one man dies, maybe by accident. You know, there's many ways that we uh, can easily be killed. Uh, thumb through the eye socket, crush grip on the trachea. But it's very unlikely that Paleolithic combatants ever got close enough to do this because of another trait that human beings have. And that's a psychological one. Contrary to what the movies may make us think, most people, actually 98% of people, have an extreme resistance to taking life or even harming another human being. And actually, as we'll see, many of the most significant military innovations throughout history have actually been methods of overcoming specifically this resistance to killing. In World War II, we found out the vast majority of the troops would not pull the trigger. And uh, it was a training flaw. They've been thought to shoot bullseyes. And no known cases any bullseyes ever attacking our troops on the battlefield. If you've been in the U.S. Armed Forces since the Korean War, never once shot a bullseye. A man-shaped silhouette pops you a field of view. You shoot the target, target drops. Stimulus response, stimulus response. Like a pilot in a flight simulator. Like a kid in a fire drill, modern training makes killing a conditioned response. That's Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, who's the author of On Killing, The Psychological Cost of Learning to Kill in War and Society. We're going to hear from him a few more times throughout the series. And what he's speaking about is what he, in his book, he coins the resistance to killing with a capital R. It's a psychological mechanism that prevents humans from killing each other. I mean, I'm actually going to read uh, quotes directly from his book. Man has a tremendous resistance to killing effectively with his bare hands. When man first picked up a club or rock and killed his fellow man, he gained more than mechanical energy and mechanical leverage. He also gained psychological energy and psychological leverage that was every bit as necessary in the killing process. In Colonel Grossman's book, he, he points out how distance is inversely proportional to resistance to killing. So uh, the further you away from someone, the easier it is to kill someone. This goes for physical distance, which of course spears and bows and arrows offer a combatant, but also the psychological distance. From a spear throwing range or even from a simple bow uh, shooting range, you don't have to be so close with the person that you have to humanize them. You can't smell them. You can't. You don't have to look them in the eyes. So just having this physical distance was, which lent itself to psychological distance, which made it much easier to... Uh, take lethal action against other humans, despite this um, resistance to killing. And let's be sure not to romanticize this by thinking that Stone Age men had some sense of morality. Morality, at least the way we think of it, hadn't really developed in human culture quite yet. Stone Age humans, they, they did have the same neural capabilities that we have, so it's not like they weren't capable of it, but human culture hadn't evolved so extensively yet, nor had language to label things. So, Perceptions and behaviors were different to our Paleolithic ancestors, and essentially they behaved much more in line with nature. They were much closer to animals because of the uh, lack of development in human culture. So just like animals, our Paleolithic ancestors were concerned with primarily one thing, or their behaviors drove them uh, towards one thing, which is survival. Personal survival and survival of the progeny. So all of our traits and behaviors were determined by natural selection that allowed for greater survival. So if a trait enhanced survival, of course it persisted. Because just imagine you're a hunter-gatherer out on the prowl in the Paleolithic era, out with your kingsmen, you have a little hunting band, and you've been tracking herd all morning. You're carrying your spears or your bows and arrows, and by accident you come across another group of men, men of a different tribe. 
you have weapons and they have weapons. Your party is full of strong, brave men and so is theirs. But they're dangerous and so are you. So you demonstrate your strength in the way that any wild animal would when faced with a threat. You'd take up space, you'd make loud noises, you'd shout, stomping your feet. You might throw some spears to demonstrate your strength. But you're really not looking to kill. You don't want to escalate the situation. Because lethal aggression is triggered in the dog brain, in the limbic system, typically by two things. One, of course, is antagonism, right? If someone is attacking you, it's a good survival strategy to at least somehow defend yourself, either get away or or fight back, right? If you're backed into a corner, we all know that uh, any animal... Uh, backed into a corner when it's scared is probably the most dangerous, right? So you wouldn't want to do that to the other people. But of course, you also wouldn't want to run away too soon because then you might trigger what in uh, Colonel Grossman's book, he calls the chase reflex. The chase reflex you've certainly seen before. Have you ever run in front of a dog or heard the the obvious advice? Don't run in front of dogs that you don't know because what happens when you run in front of a dog? It sees you as prey, it starts to chase you. Even a dog that maybe wasn't so aggressive might become aggressive if it sees you running away. Humans behave the same way. Human aggression behaves the same way. So you, in this situation, you would do everything that you could to signal that to the other party, we are not prey. It is a very bad idea to come too close to us. But you wouldn't want to be so antagonistic that you triggered their own defensive reactions. So basically, you would do the human equivalent of barking like a dog making loud noises, deterring them from coming close, and they would probably do the same. Chances are uh, when war uh, hunting bands, excuse me, ran into each other in this time in human history, they probably essentially got into a yelling match or the Stone Age version of a yelling match and uh, left each other alone because no party would be interested in engaging in combat any more than you would want to engage with a hostile predator, right? Actual fighting was way too costly. Because men died from infective wounds all the time. So even if you won the battle, even if your party was stronger and bigger and badder, there's a really good chance that none of you would live much longer afterwards to enjoy it. And there really was nothing to gain because this was the Paleolithic era. And as modern uh, modern day proponents of uh, the paleo diet like to purport, resources were fairly plentiful relative to the human population in this period of time. Most estimates put the world's population at the end of the Paleolithic era, which is 10,000 years ago, at around 5 million Homo sapiens. That's 0.06% of the world's population, or 1,560th. So it's basically like taking the population of Sydney, Australia, and spreading them all over the world, and that's all, that, that's the population density. Of course, humans at this time weren't spread all over the world, but you get the idea. Well, what this means is that most of the time, there's plenty of space and there's plenty of food to go around. There is, it did require a lot of work to acquire that food because human technology had an advance. So food acquisition was done uh, relatively inefficiently compared to modern day, which made it all the reason more that it really, you know, people didn't have time to fight wars, right? Just getting food for themselves was enough, was hard work enough. And there wasn't much to gain from other stealing from other tribes because no one really stored anything, right? As hunter-gatherers, tribes had few possessions. Uh, there's no way to preserve food and you're always following in the herds. So you needed a pack light. So you only stored Riki in the short term, which re- meant there was really nothing worth stealing and nothing, really nothing worth risking your own life to attack other humans over. So upon a- a countering another group of men, 
you'd probably do the bare minimum to scare them off. You would demonstrate your masculinity through intimidation tactics. But essentially, once both sides accept the other's strengths, you probably would both back off and return to your already hard life. Testosterone-driven aggression that evolved in men had plenty of outlet already in hunting, protecting the tribe against the elements, and non-lethal sexual competition. So presumably, when not faced with scarcity or a threat, oxytocin-driven strategies of preservation were employed to foster harmony and stability within the group with between other humans. So as long as there was enough food to go around, oxytocin impulses balanced out testosterone-driven ones to essentially minimize anything close to all-out human violence. But things were different when resources were not so abundant. The first prehistoric planned assault is believed to have occurred 13,000 years ago at Jebel Sahaba in the Nile Valley. For generations before the massacre was a time of plenty. There was a, a long period of wet and warm conditions that allowed lush plant growth, an increase in animal population, and therefore an increase in human population. But then a sudden drought marked the beginning of an ecological downturn known as the Younger Dryas Period. Watering holes rapidly dried up. Many of the plants and animals around the world died, and the surviving animals moved to the water sources that were left. In this area, it was the Nile River. This meant that there wasn't enough food and territory to support the human population that had increased over the previous period. So, someone had to die. Forensic evidence suggests that Jebel Sahaba massacre was a planned assault of a sub-Saharan tribe by a North African tribe. The bodies show punctures by stone projectiles, which were either arrowheads or spear tips, and blunt force trauma by clubs or maces. Likely, the attackers surprised their victims with a missile assault and then came in to finish the job hand-to-hand. Now, this evidence of melee combat or hand-to-hand combat is significant because it is the next major advancement against our resistance to killing. Melee combat is a lot harder, both physically and psychologically, than ranged combat. Melee combat, of course, puts the attacker at risk. If you can reach your opponent, then he can reach you as well. But the reduced psychological distance presents another challenge. If you can touch your enemy, then you can look him in the eyes. You can hear him breathing. You might be able to smell him. So unlike shooting an arrow or throwing a spear, you can't deny that you're facing another sentient human who has a will to live just like you. Certain psychological mechanisms had to be at play in order for the invaders to overcome their resistance to killing. These mechanisms will become the foundation of more advanced forms of mass killing throughout the millennia. We can infer from psychological evidence and more recent warfighting behavior of tribal peoples three possible mechanisms that made it easier for Jebel Sahaba combatants to kill at closer range. And these are important because they play into modern violence as well. The first is survival necessity. Starvation triggers more primal parts of the brain, such as the dog brain. Empathy is a higher order function, is a genetic behavior that serves social animals, allows us to cooperate and thrive more than we could on our own, but it's not so useful to empathize when you yourself are starving to death, right? Number one comes first. And when facing an immediate threat to survival, our cold reptilian brain takes over. Faced with desperate hunger, the most pro-social animals will become hostile until satiated. So likely, due to the Younger Dryas period, likely the North African invaders wouldn't have bothered murdering other humans unless it truly was a matter of life or death for them. The second is uh, something called the social pressure or social affinity effect. This is an interesting one because it actually takes advantage of our empathy and our oxytocin receptors in a way that it uh, 
creates killing. So just as testosterone doesn't always mean kill, oxytocin doesn't always mean love. This kind of pro-social behavior has succeeded in natural selection because genes are more likely to pass on when parents are willing to risk their lives to protect their children. So tribes are more likely to survive when each member is willing to fight and perhaps kill for each other's survival when absolutely necessary. And interestingly, humans are actually way more likely to kill for the sake of loved ones than for self-preservation. In Grossman's book on killing, he shares various anecdotes of war veterans who, when given the opportunity to kill an enemy at close range, chose not to. Usually this occurred when there wasn't social pressure from one's own unit or fear of others. One Vietnam veteran shared uh, coming face-to-face with a Viet Cong member in the tunnel, and wordlessly, they both chose not to fire at each other and simply turned around and went the other way. On the flip side, in World War II, Audi Murphy earned the Medal of Honor for single-handedly taking on an entire German infantry company with a machine gun. And when asked what made him do it and kill all those Germans so coldly, he said, well, they were killing my friends. So while this seems like a a noble trait, and while this principle does increase empathy and protectiveness of one's own, it's also responsible for some of history's most brutal behavior against others. In groups, especially when emotionally stimulated, we tend to emerge into a kind of psychological superorganism in terms of feeling and behavior. We commonly know this as mob mentality. You can see this when dogs get together in a pack. You can see this when riots break out at sporting events or music concerts. Individuals who would never act aggressively on their own will do some brutal things when part of a group where aggression is a predominant emotion and there's some perception that their survival is being threatened. Many of the genocides throughout history were initially spurred by the impulse to simply protect one's own, which brings us to the third possible factor, dehumanization of the enemy. This is uh, one expression of creating psychological distance that is independent of mechanical distance. Because most of us can squash a roach under a foot without feeling any remorse. You know, very few of us feel empathy for a roach. They are way too different from us to feel bad. This is the, the root of the us versus them paradigm, which we'll return to later in this series. And actually, if you watch the show Black Mirror, you may hear, have heard some of the statistics from uh, Colonel Grossman's book. They actually, there's a, an episode uh, titled Men Under Fire, uh, where they basically satirize some of these statistics and quote directly from his book about how um, throughout military history, most combatants, even when, even when in battle, chose not to kill their enemies. So in the Black Mirror episode, a little spoiler, it's from one of the earlier seasons anyway. It's a, it's a future where I believe it was Marines. Basically, they had a chip in their brain, which made them see the enemy, enemy humans as actual roaches. So they, they, they're going on these missions. It makes them, they, they think they're just shooting like some bug, but actually they're shooting real people because, uh, this trick was found to, you know, of dehumanizing the enemy makes it a lot easier to kill things, right? It's very hard to kill someone that you can empathize with. So Jebel Sahaba at the Jebel Sahaba massacre, even though both groups were homo sapiens, the fact that they looked different, and you know, certainly at this period of time, there's very little genetic mixing. And in fact, uh, one could argue that this is where this was a time where races were becoming more defined because of the lack of mixing. Jebel Sahaba, the two groups did look different. The Sub-Saharans uh, had long limbs, short torsos, and probably darker skin, more similar to Sub-Saharan modern-day Africans. And the North Africans had shorter limbs, longer torsos, and probably lighter skin. 
they probably resembled some, uh, some something closer to modern day North Africans or Middle Eastern people. So some have argued that this was the first race war in history, but that would be a mislabeling because it certainly didn't kill because of race. If anything, they killed because of survival and the fact that they looked different made it easier to kill the other, uh, made it feel more like hunting animals than murdering humans. And actually, from the archaeological evidence, uh, it does seem that most of the kills occurred due to what we previously mentioned uh, called the chase reflex. The North Africans likely surprised the, the Sub-Saharans. Um, so the Sub-Saharans were running uh, throughout. It, w- it wasn't really a battle. They were running from the attackers. And it made it a lot easier for the attackers to like, literally stab them in the back and kill them that way. Because humans, of course, are predators too. So even though... Most of the time, uh, you know, we don't chase cars the way dogs do. We still have that instinct. We, you know, we, we might mitigate it at times, but certainly in a high stakes situation, in a, you know, a, a time of high emotional arousal, that predatory reflex can be triggered in human beings too. This is something we'll see that's, uh, true in the battles of Alexander the Great all the way up into modern day battles. And Grossman writes about how a lot, large part of this is simply because when someone's running away from you, you can't see their eyes. In Grossman's book, he writes, The eyes are the window to the soul. And if one does not have to look one in the eyes when killing, it is much easier to deny the humanity of the victim. So the chase reflex has been programmed into us through many evolutionary stages long before we had conscious thought. So while most of us uh, have the forethought not to chase everything that runs away from us like a dog, that chase reflex is still an impulse within us that does come to the surface and it does happen when we can't see the other person's eyes. The forensic evidence of this battle or this massacre shows almost no defensive wounds. So it does seem that uh, essentially the, the victims were hunted. The invaders almost certainly did this to take a claim of territory or uh, food resource that the, the victims had access to. But still... Even in this time period, things like the Jebel Sahaba massacre were relatively rare events, because aside from an ecological crisis, there really wasn't a lot of reason for warfare in the Paleolithic era or Old Stone Age, because most of the time, the cost of fighting other humans was way too high and the benefits were way too low. And along with the psychological resistance to killing that almost all of us have programmed into us, one had to really be pushed to the edge in order to even think of killing another human. But then everything changed about 10,000 years ago. Chasing herds around could get annoying. Waiting for nature to provide fruit and vegetables exposed humans to risk. So some people got the bright idea to plant crops and domesticate animals. This was the agricultural revolution and the dawn of the Neolithic era or the New Stone Age. So the Neolithic era marks the first split of humans from nature. It's the first acceleration of human culture in this period in human history, we were starting to not be at total mercy of the ecosystem. At least those who took up the agrarian lifestyle could stop traveling around and instead settle where the land was most fertile. Important note, actually, this is probably how you learned it in history class, if you remember from school. There was prehistory, people were hunter-gatherers, and then you probably started learning about the Fertile Crescent. And in this series, we're also following this because we're following the technological spearhead because, of course, that's where the uh, warfighting and masculine culture spearhead will be throughout culture. Um, but it's important to note that even at this point, even you know what, during the first settlements, the first agrarian settlements, 
most of the world was still living in the hunter-gatherer style. And actually, even in the next episode, we speak about the Bronze Age where uh, there's the rise of city-states. Even at that time, most of the world still was living off the land. I mean, there were some subsistence farmers actually in what we typically call the Bronze Age. Most of the world was still living in Paleolithic or Old Stone Age or Neolithic or New Stone Age lifestyles. Like they weren't part of a state. And this is important to note, and we're going to come back to this idea a little bit later in a later episode. But the reason why this isn't, uh, most people don't even realize this, that something like, you know, even at the rise of city-states, more than 90% of the world didn't live in cities is because uh, cities are the ones that wrote history, whereas the the tribal people or the people who stayed, uh, continued in pastoral living throughout that time, they weren't keeping records for the simple reason that they didn't have, uh, they weren't able to accumulate stuff and they didn't have static settlements. But for those who were the early adopters of, uh, of settling down, of agriculture, it meant for them at least, these humans could accumulate stuff. Paleolithic humans, at least the ones who maintained the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, were always on the move, so they could only carry around what they could use. There's no way for them to store food or anything, so anything you didn't consume, you might as well share, right? There's no benefit to hoarding. But Neolithic humans, those who settled down, which of course marked the Neolithic Revolution, they were able to store things. They could make more permanent dwellings and store provisions for the future. It is actually more rational to do this for the first time in human history. So now, finally, there is incentive to hoard surplus provisions. And this surplus in provisions, this surplus, this uh, storage of what you can eat in the future is what we call wealth. People finally, in human history, had something worth stealing. Now, in the prologue, we discussed how long before humans, some organisms evolved to produce and store more energy, and other organisms evolved to steal that energy as a parasite or consume the energy as a predator. So the competition between host organisms and parasites is, at least according to what's known as Red Queen Theory, uh, the belief of what drove evolution. Now, the same thing happened at the human group level. Because if you think of a tribe, specifically an agrarian tribe, as a superorganism, right? Uh, many individual organisms who work together as a survival unit to together accumulate surplus survival ability in the form of wealth. Now, of course, every uh, Neolithic settlement had some sort of internal economy. Maybe the wealth wasn't distributed evenly. But the, as a group, they're building wealth together. They're storing more future survival ability. These were the host organisms, essentially. They were the tribes that evolved to produce their own wealth, whereas the parasites were essentially marauders. These were the tribes that evolved to take wealth from others rather than producing their own, just like a, a parasite on, on any biological organism. Because on the human group level, cattle, which is one source of wealth, can be stolen. Crops, another source of wealth, can be seized. Even humans themselves can be reduced into wealth in the form of slave labor. So just like with organisms, if one party wanted to keep its wealth and another party wants to take it, now we have an incentive to fight. We have a incentive for competition. One of the first known examples of group violence over provisions occurred around 6,000 years after Jebel Sahaba, the Jebel Sahaba massacre, in 5500 BC, and what's known as the Talheim Death Pit in modern-day Germany. 
Similar to Jebel Sahaba, it appears to have been a planned assault of one group against another group. Of the 34 victim skeletons, only two or three were killed by arrows. 18 showed skull fractures by sharp edges of an adsa, which is a Stone Age tool that was kind of like a mix between an axe and a garden hoe. Um, 14 showed death by the blunt side of the atzas, which suggests um, a less lethal attempt to kill. Um, this is an interesting point that Grossman brings up in his book on how, in addition to the just the general resistance to killing your fellow man, there's an extra resistance to stabbing. We'll discuss this more when we speak about sexual violence in a, in a later in a later episode. But Grossman brings up how in wars uh, where rifles had bayonets, so much further in the future, such as the American Civil War, it was quite common for when soldiers did engage in hand-to-hand combat, and you would think they would use the the sharp mini sword or the long knife at the edge of their of their uh, rifle. A lot of soldiers actually would turn their rifles around and swing it like a baseball bat and try to hit them with the butt instead of stabbing with the bayonet. Obviously, the bayonet's more effective, more useful in fighting. But because of this resistance to killing, even when engaged in hand-to-hand combat, there's an extra resistance to penetrating another body. And Grossman has a Freudian theory uh, about that that we'll discuss later. But this is also suggested even in this um, still Stone Age uh, level of violence, where some people did die from the sharp end, from the uh, penetrative end, but many also died from the blunt side, right? And if you're thinking, you know, if, if you're assaulting another group, why not use the lethal end? Well, just the fact that they were killed or, or harmed by the blunt end suggests some sort of psychological resistance to killing. Now, once again, the forensic evidence shows that there were no defensive wounds on the victim, suggesting that they were essentially all killed while fleeing which is consistent with our chase reflex. But unlike Jebel Sahaba, and one of the reasons why this is a, a new evolution in, in human mass violence or group violence, is that the invaders likely were not acting out of dire survival need. They weren't acting because there was a drought and the only way for their group to survive was to claim the territory of the others or to claim the food. In this case, the defenders simply had stuff that the attackers wanted extra food, extra pottery, and mostly women. So one thing that's interesting is that there were were no female skeletons amongst the victims. All 34 bodies that were found were male. This suggests that the women were claimed and assimilated into the attacker's tribe. Now, if you recall from the prologue, we spoke about Bateman's principle, which is often reduced to the adage, sperm is cheap and eggs are expensive. At least to our genes... Females are way more valuable than males. Most males are expendable. Actually, only a few high-value males are really necessary for procreation. And whereas every womb, and therefore every woman, is a valuable resource. If you're looking purely from the perspective of regenerating the population, passing on genes. So it's definitely not politically correct to assert, but at least to our Stone Age ancestors, women were a form of wealth. Women were worth stealing. And therefore, women were worth fighting for. And since women were the key to continuation of a given genetic line, women were worth dying for. And this here is the crux of why warfare is a masculine virtue. Again, recall from the prologue that we suggested, I mean, this is, of course, my theories, that even when it comes to single-celled organisms, the earliest, most primitive form of life, there are functions that we can call external functions. These are functions of dealing with outside of the organism. 
This is typically uh, described as look at an amoeba, for instance. This is the, what the membrane of the amoeba does, right? It moves it from place to place. It moves it towards food, away from predators. It opens to allow food in. It has some sort of defense. I mean, all creatures have some sort of perimeter that deals with the outside. That's one set of functions, the external facing functions. And then there's the internal functions of regeneration, of digestion, things like that. Same thing goes for the human group. If you look at a group as a superorganism, there are external functions of dealing with outside of the tribe, dealing with uh, acquiring food and bringing it in, and also repelling predators, repelling invaders, be that in human group form or, you know, battling against the elements or defending against other, you know, larger animals. And then there's a whole set of internal functions, things like regeneration, food production, food preparation, regenerating actual people in the tribe, you know, that's reproduction is an internal function, certainly. And if we look at the hormones that drive these behaviors, in general, external functions, things, you know, functions for a human tribe, the behaviors that lead to these external functions being executed well, tend to lend themselves to testosterone, or rather, high levels of testosterone typically make an individual human being better suited to external functions. Whereas oxytocin is better for internal functions. You know, in the prologue, we spoke about how, of course, testosterone increases strength, oxytocin increases social ability, but also immune system strength, right? Uh, higher levels of oxytocin typically are correlated with a healthy immune system, whereas higher levels of testosterone actually are negatively correlated with a healthy immune system. Because when it came to a human group, a survival unit, a tribe, the constant threat to security that was just what came with existence in the Stone Age became more the responsibility of men. The masculine part of society became focused with what we could call holding the perimeter or the boundary of the superorganism, how it interfaced with the external world. Whereas the what we might call the feminine part of a tribe, the oxytocin-driven part of the tribe, became relegated to within the perimeter. These are the maintaining internal functions if we compare it to, you know, the internal organs of a creature. Right? We could think of women's functions as like the organs, the nerves, the circulatory system, the tribe, whereas the male functions and the masculine testosterone-driven functions were the externally facing things, the skin, the muscle, the teeth, the claws, right? I know this is maybe a, a crude way to draw the analogy, but in this time, this is just the way things broke down. Women got pregnant, men had more muscles. And But it's not just that men were stronger, right? Because even in the Stone Age, there's lots of evidence that women also hunted too. Women also fought sometimes too. And Stone Age women were overall much hardier than the average 21st century men. Security though, security of the tribe became the responsibility of men, not women, because women were one of the main things fought over. From a genetic perspective, it didn't actually matter to a Neolithic woman which side won a given battle. I know this is, again, not a PC thing to say, but if her current mate and sons were defeated and killed, she would often end up mating with an even more dominant male. So this is not to say that the woman, a Neolithic woman whose mates and children were just slaughtered by some conqueror, this is not to say that she wouldn't be emotionally devastated. Of course she would be. It's not to say that she wouldn't initially be repulsed by the men who have now claimed her as a mate. But even those negative emotions would be mitigated, and there is a, a good survival reason, an evolutionary reason for that. It's not very pleasant to think about, but this is essentially the biological reason for the phenomenon known as Stockholm Syndrome, 
which is the experience of hostages identifying with their captors. In fiction, is often shown as uh, a hostage falling in love with their captor. And it's also important to note, that's typically the only part of Stockholm Syndrome that anybody ever hears about. Um, but actually, Stockholm Syndrome is not a one-way street. There are actually three stages to Stockholm Syndrome, as it's been uh, identified in psychology. The first is the victim experiences an increase in identification with a captor. So this is often what's uh, stressed in the movies, right? The, the hostage starts to like the captor. Stage two is the victim experiences a decrease in identification with the authorities dealing with the hostage taker or sometimes even her or his, the previous group that he or she identified with. So the victim's former group. And finally, the hostage taker experiences an increase in identification and bonding with the victim, right? So just to, to bring this to our Neolithic example, a Neolithic tribe gets taken over, an agrarian tribe, let's say, gets taken over or conquered by a group of marauders. All the men are slaughtered. And the women, of course, are horrified at first, but they're claimed as war brides, essentially. Eventually, one, they'll start to identify with the captors. Two, they'll feel less of an identification with her old tribe, you know, all the men, maybe her father, her, her mates, her, maybe her sons. She'll decrease in identification with them. And then finally, the captor will also increase identification and bonding with her, even though he claimed her, essentially. And this is, uh, I mean, if you watch Game of Thrones, this was shown in, in season one where, uh, Khal Drogo, who's kind of a fictional, fantasy representation or at least was partly inspired by by Genghis Khan he, he claims the bride of Khaleesi who's uh you know well, she, she wasn't even Khaleesi back then Daenerys and she eventually falls in love with him he falls in love with her even though initially she was just a prize now Stockholm syndrome seems very bizarre from our modern rationalistic civilized perspective but if you consider that all of our behaviors come from the evolutionary drive for survival and replication it makes total sense. A woman whose kinsmen were just slaughtered can no longer count on them for security, right? So if she continues to say that she's on their team when they don't exist anymore, she's going to die. Her best chance of survival and her best chance to then have surviving offspring would be to get along with the men who are now holding the perimeter for her, right? Because even if she was claimed as a prize, they're the ones protecting her from everyone else. Furthermore, her best chance of producing fit offspring would now be to mate with these new men. And after all, again, taboo thought, but they were, they were clearly winners, right? These are men whose offspring were probably more likely to survive because the men themselves were more likely to survive in male-male competition and therefore replicate further. So it makes a lot of evolutionary sense that the woman would have a gene-driven tendency to feel attraction and attachment to the men providing them with the security and provisions, even if they came to take that role by force. Not only does this make good of an otherwise terrible situation, genetically, it actually improved her situation. So I realize this whole subtopic here is some dark stuff. We've entered on PC territory, but if we can take off our 21st century first world glasses for a moment, we can see that this is the reality for our Stone Age ancestors. If they didn't abide for, by these effective survival behaviors, they would have died off and they would never have produced all of us to live today. So from the conqueror's perspective, there was often, there was pretty much always an incentive to keep women alive as long as they were deemed fit for reproduction. Now, of course, we'll see this in future more modern wars. This was not always the case. But from the evidence of the Stone Age, at least, it seems that women were typically kept alive and claimed as mates. 
Men, on the other hand, only could survive if they could win at fighting. So, in the prologue, again, we discussed how genes that helped an individual male win in competitions was, of course, more likely to be passed on and become a more dominant gene in the gene pool. But genes mutate relatively slowly, and intertribal warfare became commonplace relatively quickly in human history. The males who survived the rise of warfare did not rely purely on the advantages of their genes. I mean, again, genetic mutation is very slow. Most dominant groups of males also had to adapt via learned traits and behaviors, memes. So the memes that helped a tribe collectively survive and win against other tribes were more likely to be ingrained in a given culture. Tribes that lacked these dominant memes were quickly wiped out or assimilated into tribes that did carry these memes. So just as a gene with a survival, uh, an effective survival trait will become more dominant in a gene pool, memes that raise the probability of survival became prominent in the meme pool or the collective consciousness of a given culture. In other words, learned behaviors that were useful for survival became more commonplace. So the memes that specifically aided men in winning battles would eventually solidify into a part of proto-masculine culture that we call the warrior ethos. The word ethos is Greek for character. It's the root of the word ethics or moral principles. Morality gives a given culture a collective framework for how to behave. So moral principles tell the members of society what they should and shouldn't do so they can basically be on the same page and function as a group. And throughout the series, we're going to keep um, building on this idea of morality and how it forms in groups and how it affects the behaviors of groups. Um, because, of course, it's ingrained in the evolution of warfare and therefore the evolution of masculinity. But if we go back to where we're at in our timeline, which is the Stone Age, back in the Stone Age, morality was simple. Good, in quotes, um, you know, it's important that we put quotes around the word good because it's subjective, as we'll see in, in later eras of human history. Good was anything that enhanced survival. Bad or evil was anything that didn't, anything that was detrimental for survival. So the warrior ethos was a set of memes that increased the chance of winning violent conflict. These were values that, when instilled in a society of men, gave them a greater chance of survival against other men when they fought. Writer Jack Donovan identifies four of these memes as what he calls the tactical virtues, which are masculine values that have become consistent across cultures due to their practical survival value. The word virtue itself comes from the Latin vir for men. It's also the root of the word virile. Well, there are a lot of virtues that you can have. What I looked for in the way of men with strength, courage, masculine honor are things that are always specific to masculinity. Men expect other men to have them. It defines what makes them masculine or not. Courage is something that men needed from each other in emergencies, and women really needed men to have courage too, to protect them. Men really appreciate when another man is really good at something. And they kind of expect them to do at least be confident. So, and then honor, I think, the basic definition of honor is, is that you care about the men around you's opinion, the men in your honor group, uh, whether it's your, your zombie team or, or whether you know, it's your broader society, uh, it means caring about what those men think. And uh, you, know, you respect them and they respect you and you demonstrate that back and forth. And that's important to you because if those men don't respect you, 
mean, you're depending on them for security. Strength, competence, and courage are straightforward because they evolve directly from natural selection. Strength and competence equal the ability of a man to fight. Courage is the willingness to fight. But long before humans developed consciousness, strong, competent, and courageous males outdid weak and fearful ones. Honor, on the other hand, is a little different. Honor is not a genetic behavior. It's a cultural one. Honor can only exist if there is a society to observe it. Honor, therefore, would become the most prominent virtue at the cultural level and even absorb the other tactical virtues as components of it. Honor we can define as upholding a certain reputation. And there are two social functions of honor, within the tribe and between tribes. So first, intra-tribal honor, within the tribe, honor allowed men who are within the same tribe to trust each other and work together. So testosterone and all the androgens are performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, they are males with physical strength, emotional aggression, and a cold, calculating mentality that allows one to excel in zero-sum competition. The potential evolved initially to help an individual male and his genes last through the competition and survival of the fittest. But sometimes, what would have an individual excel in the short term is not the same as what would have the group excel in the long term, and therefore the ind individual also survive in the long term. So for example, if uh, murderous raiders were attacking your village, a given man has a much higher chance of short-term survival if he runs away rather than stands and fights. Now, this creates a, a game theory dilemma between the men of a given tribe, assuming that the men were taking on the primary responsibility of tribe security. If everyone, all the men, sacrificed for the tribe, the group was most likely better off, meaning if all of the all of the men stood to protect the tribe, protect the women and children. Of course, they were, as a group, better off. But it, no matter who you went to, whatever man in the situation, each individual man had a much better chance of surviving if he didn't stick around, at least in the short term. Furthermore, no guy wants to be the only one, like the only sucker left defending the village when everyone else turned tail. So every man is further incentivized to save his own hide because not only does he have a better chance of surviving if he runs, he definitely doesn't want to get the sucker's payoff and be the only one staying if everyone else runs. So faced with this, what would end up happening if everyone just followed their individual immediate payoff, if there was no a collective meme to, to counter this, all the men would leave, the women and children would get absorbed, and that, and that tribe wouldn't exist anymore. And certainly that must have happened with some tribes who we, we don't even know their names anymore because they were absorbed so quickly. But for the ones that did, for any group to survive, the men had to find a way to trust each other that they would also stick around too, right? They, they had to trust that their fellow men, their, their kinsmen would also sac sacrifice for the collective good. And then they would know that they wouldn't be the sucker uh, left holding the bag, right? With people attacked. Now, the thing is, if every man in the village was looking inward at each other, right? They're keeping an eye on everyone to make sure that uh, I, I'm going to make sure that Joe doesn't run because if, if he does, I'm going to run too. So they're all keeping their eyes on each other. They wouldn't really be able to work together effectively, right? Like they wouldn't be able to create an effective perimeter against external threats if they were constantly worried about each other. Such a society would very quickly get overrun. So honor within a tribe, intra-tribal honor, solves this problem by having the men care about their reputation. Honor essentially answers the question, can we trust you 
to sacrifice your personal well-being for the sake of the tribe. Now, what is considered honorable varies from culture to culture, but throughout all cultures, honor is always demonstrated through conduct, as actions are harder to fake than words. Of course, anyone could say, oh yeah, when the raiders come, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll have your back, but then when they come, that guy's not there, right? It has to be demonstrated through conduct. The most universal honorable conduct is simply keeping your word, right? In, in any culture where honor is valued at all, you see people really care about keeping your word. Because, of course, having a history of following through on what you say suggests to all the other men that they can trust you and they can let their guard down around you. Honorable conduct often also involves some sort of personal sacrifice for collective good. Because this is a way that males can signal to each other, hey, look, look at how I sacrifice my own comfort for everyone else's benefit. So obviously, when shit goes down, you can count on me. So in every culture where honor became important, where security was important, this allowed men of a given tribe to essentially give their backs to each other, to to stop having to constantly look over their shoulder and see if the other guy was sticking around and doing the right thing. Because if everyone, if you knew that every man in the tribe cared about his honorable reputation, well, then you can be a little more at ease on whether or not he'll do the right thing when the tribe is under threat. So this allowed all the men of a given tribe to face outwards, essentially, and create a perimeter against the threats of the outside world, rather than focusing all inwards. So the cultures that were under the most threat from the outside were the first to standardize honorable conduct and indoctrinate their men with rites of passage. Most rites of passage involved a humbling experience that showed a young man that his power was best used for the service of the tribe. Having the honor meme instilled in a culture solved the internal game theory dilemma by ensuring all the males cared more about their reputation than even their own comfort or survival. So this can be seen in the mimetic slogan often used in warrior cultures from antiquity all the way up to the modern military and gangs and seen in gang tattoos often, which is death before dishonor. If a man really believes that death is preferable to dishonor, then suddenly whether to run or fight when the raiders come is no longer a dilemma, right? Because if someone actually takes on that ethic, the worst case scenario of fighting is now better than the best case scenario of running, right? He, he would rather die than be seen as dishonorable. Therefore, of course, he'll stand and fight. There's actually no more dilemma. Honor created an unspoken agreement between men that they would use their destructive potential against the outside world, not against each other. However, this meant that any breach of this agreement had to be met by violence. Throughout honor cultures, which are societies where honor is very important, is a very important value, men have always defended their honor through some sort of fighting. If someone threatened your honor and you didn't personally punish him, then it showed that your honor meant nothing. You had to follow through on your shows of strength. Now, within a tribe, of course, lethal combat over minor disputes would be detrimental to the tribe. You know, if, if there was a, a, a duel to the death every time there was an, maybe an accidental uh, slight, that would be bad for the tribe, which is one of the reasons why millennia into the future, things like dueling would be outlawed by uh, later cultures. But even for these earlier primitive cultures, many cultures that uh, were big on war fighting would have some form of non-lethal combat kind of as like an outlet for men within a tribe to settle honorable disputes, display strength, basically exercise all of their masculine virtues without killing each other. 
So one example from uh, Genghis Khan's tribe, the Mongolians, is uh, a form of wrestling or bak. It's called bak. It was actually considered one of the three manly virtues um, of the Mongols during the era of Genghis Khan, along with archery and horsemanship. Actually, it's funny. Uh, modern comedian Tom Segura has a bit about how there are four things that all men think they're good at slash want to be good at, which is uh, fighting, fucking, driving, and being funny. And there's probably an evolutionary root from all of these things, right? Fighting, being able to fight, certainly uh, masculine virtue. Uh, it was something that was required of our, our male ancestors. You know, fucking, of course, is the uh, passing on of genes. Uh, driving, which co- probably correlates to horsemanship, also a very important thing, uh, being able to move your vehicles around, and perhaps related to warfare, but also... Yeah, just an important thing. Uh, we can imagine, especially for the Mongols or uh, pastoral people that were constantly on horseback. And then being funny is, uh, well, we'll talk about uh, emotional leadership in later episodes. Now, these non-lethal combats, say wrestling, which is uh, prominent in pretty much every uh, warrior culture. If you watch MMA, you know that modern day, some of the best fighters and some of the best wrestlers in the world come from uh, a part of the former Soviet Union known as Dagestan. Uh, Dagestan's actually a part of the world that uh, largely is inhabited by descendants of warrior tribes such as the Mongols. And wrestling is really big there. Everyone seems to be very good at wrestling over there, and it's showing up in modern-day mixed martial arts. But anyways, these are, this is evidence of non-lethal combat and displays of inter- opportunities for intra-tribal honor, honor within the tribes. Now, the thing is, when honor was challenged between tribes, there wasn't as much reason to avoid the bloodshed. Which brings us to intertribal honor, honor between tribes. Because tribes as groups also needed to maintain the reputation as groups against other tribes. So unlike within a tribe where punishment was balanced by an affinity for your kinsmen and an incentive to cooperate and defend yourselves from the outside, between tribes... Honor could only really be upheld by violence. Now, if one tribe was wronged by another tribe, the only way to police future actions was through violent retaliation. Because if the disrespected tribe didn't retaliate and retaliate hard, then other tribes would perceive them as easy prey and they would very soon be overrun. So a reputation of violence was the greatest defense for a community that lacked stone walls or other barriers, which no community had uh, in the Stone Age. This was especially true for pastoral communities whose primary wealth was livestock that could literally be herded away. Even to this day, we see honor and retaliation memes most prominent in cultures that descend from herding and stateless peoples in the Middle East, in the Balkans, and even in the American South. In modern-day Albania, blood feuds are still common. Actually, a 2018 Albanian study showed that 704 families are still affected by ongoing blood feuds, and that's using data from uh, 2018 police records. A blood feud, of course, is where families go back and forth, killing members of each other, essentially to retaliate from the last one. And there, there are blood feuds that have gone through multiple generations. One American blood feud that is well known, and the History Channel even uh, did a, a fictional series on it, is uh, the Hatfields versus the McCoys. Um, this was a, a family, two families engaged in a blood feud that lasted multiple generations. 
They might be wondering, where is the resistance to killing in an ongoing blood feud? Well, actually, one of the times that people seem to have very little resistance to killing is when there is a perceived benefit for one's family. Colonel Grossman, in his book, calls this the home court advantage effect. Most people are well able to overcome the resistance to killing when defending their home or territory, when it's being invaded. This is kind of a, an extension of the caged reflex that is obviously driven by survival instincts. When there is a looming threat on your people, specifically to your offspring, most people can turn off their empathy completely and are capable of harsh brutality against the enemy. Some of the most ruthless killers in the animal kingdom, for instance, are actually mothers protecting their young. And this is supported by research cited by John Coates in his book, The Hour Between Dog and Wolf, in that when a competitor is on home turf, his, a sports competitor is on home turf, his testosterone levels tend to rise, which proves that in sports, the famed home court advantage is not only real, but is actually a measurable hormonal effect. When you're a typical athlete on home territory, you're actually stronger than when you're playing away. The idea of blood feuds and violent retaliation may make these cultures seem barbaric from the perspective of modern pacifistic society. But ironically, they actually developed as a way to prevent chaos and all-out carnage. Because anyone who's been exposed to the aforementioned cultures will, will note that they tend to emphasize shows of respect. If you know that disrespect will lead to violence, then of course you would take extra care to make sure that you didn't offend. So, Because what really kept the peace was a reputation that one was capable of violence, not necessarily violence itself. I mean, once violence occurred, it tended to deteriorate like in a blood feud. But if, you, if everyone knew that you're capable of violence and you knew everyone else was capable of violence, well, then everyone would at least try to keep the peace. In areas where the honor meme was particularly prominent, but the economic incentives for war was relatively low or negative, we see a social phenomenon known as endemic warfare. Endemic warfare is a state of continual warfare between tribes without any attempt to conquer each other. So, you know, this is a little bit different than marauders trying to take the stuff of another tribe or um, later on nations trying to expand and empires trying to expand their borders, which we're going to speak about in the next episode. This is simply tribes fighting almost for the sake of fighting. Just imagine that you're a, a Neolithic man who is responsible, along with your other male kinsmen, to uphold the perimeter and keep your tribe safe. Now, you're aware that in your area there are other tribes. You've come across them periodically. And just like your tribe, those other tribes, have societies of men who live by some version of the warrior ethos, right? Let's just assume that in this part of the world, at this era, that has developed as a, as a meme right? Any other tribe that didn't have that was taken over some long time ago. So any other tribe, you know, will go to war if needed to display their strength and courage and honor to defend their tribe and defend the reputation, just like your tribe will. So when disputes occur between tribes, as they will inevitably occur when humans interact, the warriors of your tribe have to engage in battle, if only to signal that your tribe is not to be fucked with. And the nature of each dispute may be different, and the offenders may change every time, but the need for battle can be so consistent that you might as well schedule it. And even though the other tribes are made up of worthless subhumans in the eyes of your tribe and vice versa, it makes sense to find ways to mutually reduce the destruction. After all, 
in these situations, neither tribe is really interested in conquering each other. Both sides just simply need to uphold the reputation of honor to keep the others in check. So it's, it's really not necessary at all to kill each other. And just like the Paleolithic warrior bands that would shout and essentially bark to prevent combat, it's preferable to these Neolithic tribes to not have to kill each other. This is perhaps one of the early roots of the honorable ethic of respecting your foe, right? In, in a sense, they needed it. But once the honor meme was solidified in, in, as part of masculine virtue, you kind of needed an enemy to prove your honor. Now, this, uh, this idea might seem like a rational circular logic to perhaps someone who's just not masculine, someone who doesn't have a lot of androgen receptors. You know, they might even look at this as being kind of toxic. It's like, what you need, uh, you need an enemy to prove your honor, but you need honor to fight your enemies. Like it's the circular thing. I actually remember, uh, last year I, I was inspired by David Goggins to do this four by four by 48 challenge that he, he issues online, which is to run four miles every four hours for 48 hours. And uh, I got some of my buddies together and, and we committed to doing this for the weekend. Um, and of course it's, you know, it's uncomfortable. It's difficult, but we were doing this kind of to keep each other in check. And like, uh, we would show up, especially during the, the early morning runs, like the 4 a.m. run. And, you know, you, you basically don't sleep very well because you, you have to run every four hours. And I remember uh, one of my buddy's girlfriends was watching us and was like, why the hell are you doing this? Like, because he was, you know, of course saying, you know, pointing out how he was tired after the first 24 hours. He's like, well, why are you doing it? Why don't you just stop? And it was hard to, to explain, for any of us to explain to her why we had to continue because she was just like, well, this thing that you've chosen to do feels bad. Why don't you just stop doing it? Cause it feels bad. And it was like, almost like, unless you have the androgen receptors, unless you have the, we could call it like inherent masculinity, this type of thing doesn't make sense. But I, th I think for most people who are masculine in their uh, disposition, who perhaps do have the androgen receptors, it's a kind of an obvious thing, right? Like you told the men that you, whose, whose opinion you care about that you're going to do a thing, you have to do it. You're actually doing it specifically because it's uncomfortable and you're doing it with people, right? Like if any of us didn't show up to one of the runs, they would lose honor essentially. So we're actually going to revisit this because basically all, all human values and certainly masculine virtues started with some sort of survival purpose, right? There was a reason for it, right? Maybe with this David Goggins challenge, you know, you know, we got fired up. We said we're going to take souls and all that stuff. But of course, in the 21st century, there's not really a reason to do that. But we still have the, we would call it like the genetic program or the subconscious program or the wiring to, to that activates with these, these uh, opportunities to demonstrate honor. So even though it's, it's disconnected from modern day survival purpose, it's essentially kind of like a, a vestigial organ or a vestigial program in our psyches that for a masculine individual, it's still it still can get triggered. The button still can get pushed and actually needs to get pushed for, for a man to feel good. With warrior cultures where endemic warfare was present, where they got to fight essentially for the sake of fighting, it fed something. It fed something in the male psyche. As Colonel Grossman would say, There is within us a desire for a righteous battle. Endemic warfare usually had some form of ritual to the combat, some ritualized combat to reduce fatalities. This allowed men to express their testosterone-driven traits, their virtues of strength, courage, and honor 
without mutual destruction. So essentially, on some level, they, you could fight again another day. In Freudian terms, this was an attempt at sublimation, the expression of an instinct, an instinctual impulse, in a more pro-social or socially acceptable form. With endemic warfare, both sides could assert their strength and resolve their disputes without massive casualties. Obviously, people still got hurt, but uh, it was better than the all-out carnage of actually trying to conquer another tribe. And this was actually a lot more in line with nature. In the animal kingdom, most male-male competition doesn't actually result in death. Some contests are decided purely on appearances. If there's a major size difference between two males, both parties will usually accept the alpha and beta roles without needing to risk harming each other. And even when physical struggle does occur, when the ram's butt heads or the, the bull elephant's uh, lock tusks or the bull elephant seals lock heads and, and faces <laughs> and trunks, usually when it's clear who is uh, definitively stronger, the weaker will often concede and the stronger will show mercy because just like to the Paleolithic hunters, there isn't really much to gain and there's a lot to lose with trying to kill someone. Throughout history, we see endemic warfare pop up as kind of a stabilizing force between warrior people. One relatively recent example of this is the Aztec Flower Wars. The Aztec Empire, in what is now the Americas, was by far the most powerful military force in that area until the arrival of Spain in 1519. The Flower Wars it was a, essentially a practice war between them and the opposing civilizations. Now, this, of course, is thousands of years after the Stone Age, and the Aztecs were highly advanced compared to Neolithic tribes, but it gives us an idea of what other endemic warfare examples might have been like. Because, of course, we don't have a lot of data from Neolithic tribes that didn't keep any records uh, of you know what they did. So, unlike normal wars uh, that the Aztecs did also engage in periodically, where the armies were mostly made up of peasants because they're just trying to do whatever they could to conquer the other tribe, the flower wars were mostly fought by noblemen, which is interesting because uh, these were the these were the individuals who maybe didn't have to fight when it came to necessity. They needed an opportunity to fight to display honor. And this also, the flower wars tended to occur during the spring and summer seasons when the peasants were needed for farming. So it's almost like there was a season for actual fighting and then where the peasants were activated. And there was a season where the peasants could, you know, serve their productive uh, capacity and the noblemen could fight for the sake of honor. Flower war battles uh, had a preset date and location and both sides brought the same number of combatants. This, of course, was to make it fair because if you had twice as many people or if you had a, a numerical advantage, you didn't really prove your honor if you won. Now, th this was fighting, so deaths and serious injury did occur, but flower wars on the battlefield did not result in annihilation of a losing enemy. On top of that, it was actually seen that if you died in a flower war, it was seen as even more honorable than in a normal war. Um, they were called flower wars because the Aztecs believed that they gave fallen warriors a flowery or more pleasant passing into the next world, which uh, just uh, shows you a little bit about their, uh, their perspectives on honor. According to the Aztecs, flower wars were used as a way to practice fighting, display courage, and capture men for sacrifices. Uh, this is likely also a way to resolve conflict without needing to escalate into all-out massacre. So in many ways... Endemic warfare was kind of a precursor to modern-day team sports. 
Each city has its own representative warriors. There's a predetermined time and place for the battle. There are rules to make the contest fair to show, display who has the better skill, not other asymmetrical advantages. So when you cheer for your favorite football team and feel the highs of victory and the lows of defeat, as mentioned in the FIFA World Cup story that we opened the prologue episode with, you're essentially using the same neuroendocrine circuits that our Neolithic ancestors did when their tribe went to battle. From our modern perspective, looking back at mass annihilation of modern wars, the idea that anything could be decided by ritualized combat might seem primitive. And even modern-day sports fans don't always accept their defeat. Soccer hooligans and American football fanatics are known to riot when their team loses sometimes. Um, and if your side lost a ritual battle, if you didn't like that outcome, you didn't want to accept the dishonor of losing, well, you might as well make it a real battle. And that is eventually what happened across cultures. In the Aztec flower war with the Chalcas, another tribe, it eventually did become a real war when both sides became tired of the convention of releasing captured prisoners. So they ended up killing each other, which of course pissed people off, which of course led to a real war. In New Guinea, where endemic warfare had gone on for a very long time, for actually many generations, it eventually escalated to all-out war once guns were introduced to the island, because it's uh, kind of hard to not play lethally or not fight lethally when you're fighting with bullets. And while many Neolithic tribes likely practiced some form of non-lethal combat to settle social disputes, that didn't last very long either. Because ritualized combat requires a mutual honoring of the rules. And without some sort of body to enforce the rules, there's no referee, of course, um, there's always a risk that someone will escalate to all-out conflicts. I mean, you can see this in children play fighting. You're, you've agreed to play fight, but one person hits the other a little bit too hard, and then you hit them back a little bit harder to make up for it. And before you know it, you're, hit, you're fighting for real. Because as we'll see throughout the history of war, conflict always escalates because of the most violent player. For an even more recent example of this, we can look at the rise of the Zulu nation in the 1700s AD. Even though this is 7,000 years after the Stone Age, the tribes of southern Africa had mostly maintained the semi-nomadic lifestyle that was more prominent in the Paleolithic and Neolithic eras. So up until this point, the tribes in southern Africa practiced a form of endemic warfare to settle disputes. Each side would fight with a small shield and their hunting spear, which was meant for throwing, and it was uh, fairly difficult to stab with. And typically, in battles, uh, they would line up man-to-man in what was kind of more like a brawl. And when one side was beaten up, they usually relented. Fighting was typically not to the death, and when a fatality did occur, it was considered an unfortunate accident. Now, Shaka Zulu, of the Zulu tribe, decided to change all that. He essentially broke the game and escalated to lethality before the other tribes, perhaps inspired by the European powers that had landed on the continent. When Shaka Zulu took power in 1816, he had his men upgrade their weapons to a short sword-like spear that was used in underhand stabbing motion meant to disembowel the enemy rather than hurt him. It was also very hard to block. And certainly in their early battles where the other side was fighting in the old style where it's kind of hard to kill each other, they definitely were surprised to suddenly have their guts pouring out of them. Shakazulu also employed a battlefield tactic to give an asymmetrical advantage and crush the enemy with a maneuver commonly known as a double envelopment or pincer attack, 
um, Shaka Zulu called this his bullhorn formation. So whereas uh, in the old battles is basically two masses of men lining up man to man and essentially locking up and fighting straight on, Shaka Zulu broke up his army into three types of units, the chest, the horns, and the loins. The chest were his primary warriors. These were the stronger veterans. And, and these guys would fight in a similar style as the old style. Of course, with their new lethal weapons, they would basically be a mass. They'd be, they'd be a chest and they would essentially lock weapons with the other side. But then he also had another type of unit called the horns. These were typically younger, faster, maybe not as strong fighters, maybe adolescents who would now come out of the sides of the chest. So if you imagine the chest is this, this block formation, the horns would come out from the flanks uh, because they were younger, typically faster, and they would uh, do the double envelopment. They would do the pincer where they would come in from the flanks. So just imagine for generations in this part of the world, at this, in this era, tribes didn't fight this way. They didn't, they didn't expect basically a tactical maneuver. They were expecting to fight through strength and honor and bravery. But suddenly they're fighting this other group, which now, who now have weapons that are designed to gut them. And while they're fighting these, the, the chest formation from the front, these uh, younger guys are coming in from the sides and, and stabbing them in the sides. And uh, of course, we know uh, one of the most key uh, tactics in pitched battles is flanking someone because it's extremely difficult to fight someone head on and fight someone from the side at the same time. And then finally, he had the loins which was essentially a reserve guard. It was the older veterans who maybe weren't as strong and weren't as fast, and he would have them behind the chest formation. So once the horns came in, which essentially caused a rout, uh, because you could just imagine if you're getting uh, stabbed from three sides, you're probably not going to stick around very long. Once he started running, he would send the loins in, who were uh, older, uh, typically older, uh, maybe not as strong warriors, who now had a chance to essentially stab everyone in the back trigger the chase reflex, and they could basically annihilate the other tribe. So th this tactic in this part of the world, in this era, was extremely significant because it moved them away from winning competition purely through strength and bravery for the prize of honor, and instead shows that you're really playing for keeps. It was designed to give the attackers an asymmetrical advantage to actually wipe out the enemy, not just preserve the ethic of honor. So Shaka Zulu's introduction of killing is a more recent example of something that probably happened a lot amongst the first warring tribes in the Neolithic era, because uh, someone eventually must have had the idea to escalate beyond fair fighting, so this honorable conduct eventually devolved into all-out fighting, right? It's uh, Even though intertribal honor might deter the need to, to actually kill your enemy, if someone did take it there, well, there's no way to go back, essentially. So even though most men have an aversion to taking life and most men prefer not to, to settle disputes without killing, there have always been natural born killers in our midst. And even though they're extreme minority, these men of violence have been the drivers of evolution, the evolution of war throughout ancient history. Shaka Zulu was an example, but there have always been men in every group that have been this way. And for an idea how this came to be, let's look at another hypothetical example. One more time, let's imagine that you and your closest hundred friends live together in a Neolithic agrarian settlement. So you're a small, fairly egalitarian band. You, for the most part, know and trust each other, right? Because you have to. 
Everyone has a job that contributes to the community. Food is plentiful. And for the most part, life is good. But one morning, someone sounds a warning that marauders are coming. You know that the marauders live a different kind of life than your peaceful farming community. They live by taking wealth by force from others. They have no reason to demonstrate honor to your people outside of their group, and maybe they don't even see you as people. So they're certainly playing for keeps. You know that if they win, they will perhaps try to kill you and your brothers, abduct and rape your women, or at the very least, take so much food that some of your community will probably suffer. So there is no room to negotiate. You need to fight. So in anticipation of the marauders, you and the 50 or so other able-bodied men of the settlement make a stand to defend the perimeter. You gather up your tools, maybe rudimentary farming instruments, adzes, hammers, machetes, clubs. You're honorable men and you're committed to fighting in order to protect everything you hold dear. But you're not killers. You're farmers, maybe primitive craftsmen, maybe you raise animals, but you don't find killing humans easy because you have a psychological resistance to killing. Like most men out there, you do not delight at the idea of smashing your hammer against another man's skull, even if you know he has bad intentions, even if you have a moral justification for killing. Let's say this is not your first battle. Let's say that you've reluctantly killed before. Last time marauders came, the home court advantage instinct did kick in and you were able to overcome your resistance, and you did smash your hammer into the enemy's skull. Then perhaps you experienced the winter effect. Testosterone and dopamine flooded your system with that momentary victory. The rush of male hormones further reduced your empathy, which made it easier to continue to fight and win and maybe kill some more enemies so that your people could survive. But then, after the fog of battle lifted, your fight response subsided and your oxytocin receptors reengaged, a horrible sensation came over you. You stood over the body of your fallen enemies and you saw that they were men just like you. The skull you crushed was made of bone just like yours. You didn't mean to kill him. You just really wanted him to go away. And even though he came to harm you, you know that he was only doing it because that was his way to feed his own family. You maybe empathized with his children who now would starve. So you felt some natural level of remorse. Even though you're willing to do your honorable duty, this memory makes it difficult and uncomfortable to kill the next time. If you could somehow protect your village without having to take a life, you would much prefer it. And most of your comrades feel the same way, right? Tribes like yours needed to hold post-battle rituals to cleanse the remorse and reintegrate people into normal peacetime. Actually, uh, Lieutenant Grossman argues that a lot of what causes PTSD uh, in modern soldiers is because uh, modern training has found ways to remove the resistance to killing. And unlike ancient tribes, we don't have reintegration rituals. Modern training makes killing a condition response. Today, people will pull the trigger reflexively without conscious thought. They will save their lives. They will, they will achieve the victory, but they need to be prepared to live with what they've been conditioned to do. But in your Neolithic tribe, there's likely one guy in the 50 who doesn't need a reintegration ritual. He's a little bit different. He doesn't, for some reason, feel any remorse when he kills. For some reason, he's just missing that gene. He doesn't have any resistance to harming the enemy. And not only is he good at it, he kind of enjoys it. 
we can imagine a guy like Mike Tyson in his prime, someone who's not only physically capable of demolishing other, other men, he's psychologically wired for it. He doesn't need a moral justification to kill. He kind of likes it. He's perhaps like Shaka Zulu, a true man of violence. So when the marauders come, this guy, we'll call him Iron Mike, takes out his machete and he runs out to meet them. And while you and the other villagers try not to piss yourselves as you hold the line, this guy takes the fight to the invaders, slashing and killing, stabbing. He's a one-man wrecking machine. Now, you and the other men of the village, you're not cowards by any means. You do your duty to fight and struggle against the enemy, but Iron Mike has almost all the kills. And when the marauders finally do begin to retreat, largely out of fear of Mike, your champion, do you and the other men have the reflex to chase them down? The chase reflex kills in and finally it becomes easy to kill the enemy. Prior to the advent of organized military, this is likely how many battles and skirmishes were like. And the one in 50 example I just threw out wasn't random. Actually, according to military historian Gwyn Dyer, approximately 2% of men have a natural ability to kill without remorse. In his book titled War, Dyer writes, There is such thing as a natural soldier, the kind who derives the greatest satisfaction from male companionship, from excitement, and from the conquering of physical obstacles. He doesn't want to kill people as such, but he'll have no objections if it occurs within a moral framework that gives him justification, like war, and if it's the price of gaining admission to the kind of environment he craves. Whether such men are born or made, I do not know. But most of them end up in armies, and many move on to become mercenaries because regular army life in peacetime is too routine and boring. But armies are not full of such men. They are so rare that they form only a modest fraction of even the smallest professional armies, mostly congregating in commando-type special forces. In large, conscript armies, they virtually disappear beneath the weight of more ordinary men. And it is these ordinary men who do not like combat at all that armies must persuade to kill. Until only a generation ago, they did not realize how bad a job they were doing. Dyer wrote that in 1985, and he is referring to the same stats highlighted by SLA Marshall and Lieutenant Colonel Grossman that reveal a high resistance to killing in most fighting men. In violent group conflict, there has always been a Pareto distribution with killing. You've probably heard of Pareto as the 80-20 rule. Pareto distribution means that a minority of inputs cause a majority of the outputs. So with warriors on the battlefield, it's often this 2% of natural-born killers that make up a majority of the kills. This is consistent all the way up to World Wars. In World War II, about 1% of fighter pilots were responsible for 40% of the kills. Recall in the prologue how certain virility factors, such as prenatal testosterone exposure, is a better indicator of aggressive behavior than any other genetic factor. What seems to determine if someone with a low 2D to 40 ratio becomes something destructive like a serial killer or something constructive like a stockbroker seems to be a function of what environmental factors he was exposed to. Now, we can speculate why such a 2% exists and why it's only 2%. By today's standards, we might be quick to label that 2% natural killer as a sociopath or something like that. But in antiquity, he served an extremely important role. At least in the Stone Age, that 2% killer does a huge service for the tribe, which is preserving the whole gene pool. Actually, according to Dyer's more recent research, most of the natural-born killers of World War II actually went on to become productive, successful, and otherwise normal, peaceful members of society. 
Their killer instinct was activated in war, but it could be turned off in peace. And 2%, or 1 in 50, likely evolved as the most stable ratio. Because you'd imagine if the entire tribe was made of natural-born killers, they might be great at fighting other tribes, but they'd be way more vulnerable to internal conflict. Right? If, if no one has a resistance to killing, how often would internal disputes escalate to mass fatalities and the tribe would wipe itself out? So the 2% remorseless, 98% reluctant ratio was probably the most stable breakdown, known as the Nash equilibrium in game theory. This is a situation where there is no incentive for the ratios to change and therefore it's the most stable. If you imagine a typical Neolithic settlement, this meant only one or possibly two men would fit the bill of natural killer. Neolithic settlements rarely grew past 150 people. This limitation is known as Dunbar's number, which is the maximum number of intimate relationships the human brain can handle, typically called the law of 150 because it's about 150 people. This means that even though we can have 5,000 Facebook friends and tens of thousands of acquaintances, we really only have the headspace to keep track of the lives and reputations of about 150. This is limited by our limbic brain. In Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point, he mentions how the company Gore-Tex found that 150 was the magic number to ensure an organizational unit remained on a close first-name basis with each other. Cultures like the Amish and Hutterites, who value community first, will by design limit their community size to about 150 for the same reason. And Neolithic farming settlements are known to have organically split when they reach such a size, which would mean that it would be rare to have more than one natural-born killer in a given group. And one of the benefits of keeping the group small is that you don't need formal governments. The familiarity between people is usually enough to have everyone act to maintain the reputation. Men could easily observe each other's honorable conduct, especially that of whomever was in charge. Let's look back now at your Neolithic village and Iron Mike, your village champion. As the one natural-born killer in your group, he'd be elevated to a special role, protector of the realm. His personal reputation for violence that becomes enough to scare off invading tribes. Essentially, his personal honor fills in for the honor or represents the honor of the entire tribe. He represents your tribe to the entire outside world. So, in a sense, he's the primary holder of the perimeter, the most masculine function of the social group, the externally faced function. He provides security. It's his protection that allows those internal functions, the food production, child rearing, just general existence, life sustenance to continue to exist. So as far as any role in the village, his is the most uniquely important because without him, you'd be all dead. So maybe out of a combination of both fear and love, all of you in the village, you'd ensure that he is well-fed and that he is happy. Due to biological drives, women would naturally desire to have his child more than other men. And all the other men, you defer to him to make important decisions because after all, you're better off that way. And in this way, eventually he evolves into a sort of chief. This social role of chief or leader of this uh, kinship group, this uh, Neolithic tribe, this social role takes the place of the familial role or more biological role of head of the family. The tribe is an extension of the family, right? And, and by family, you know, of course, in various, especially prehistoric cultures, there's there's probably a big variance on the the norms of, on, say, whether or not there was 
such thing as a perception of a nuclear family the way we think of today. But biologically, I mean, totally independent of their social functioning, biologically, when I say family, I'm talking about the relationship of adult female, adult male coming together to make a child, right? That biological unit as a survival unit existed, where the two adults, the male and female, the mother and the father, have a shared incentive to keep the child alive for the sake of their genes. Same thing as a tribe, you know, amongst a, a kinship group or, or a group that, you know, is maybe loosely related or, you know, they have some genes in common, but they're not exactly what we would call biological family. This social group, though, is essentially a, a heightened version of that, right? Where they are all together pooling resources with a shared interest in having their collective offspring exist and have the tribe continue and the gene pool continue. Therefore, the chief is kind of like the head of the family. I mean, we can say replacing the father or replacing the person that is focused on, the, again, the external functions of protection and provisioning. James Carr's author of my favorite philosophy book, Finite Infinite Games, uh, points this out in the metaphors used between kings and fathers, right? Like it's pretty common to refer to the king of a given realm as the father of a country, but you wouldn't say that in reverse, right? You wouldn't say that my dad is the king of the household. Like that, I mean, you might, but that's kind of like a, there's almost something silly about that. Whereas uh, the king is the father of the nation, that's a little bit different. Now, of course, despite the privileges, Iron Mike, or Chief Mike, we can call him, he'd still have to behave honorably. In fact, of all the men in the tribe, he'd have to behave the most honorably. Because even if he earned his position by being the, the biggest or the baddest, the other 49 men, we can even call them the 49 beta males, could overpower him if they had to, right? If, if Chief Mike greatly misused his power and the cost of having him as leader was to the tribe was greater than the benefit of having him as the chief, the rest of them would just remove him from power, right? In a uh, small group like this, you know, even though, of course, there was a dominance hierarchy, it was a relatively shallow pyramid, if you will, because there was this natural check and balance between the alpha male, the chief, and everyone else. So Chief Mike, just for practical reasons, would take this privileged role at the top of your hierarchy seriously. And because the, the rest of the pyramid keeps him behaving reasonably. So long as everybody plays their role, the dominance hierarchy can be stable, cooperative, and remain an efficient survival unit, good at defending itself against marauders or, you know, sociological predators, and, you know, just continuing to survive, regardless of the difficulties of survival in the Stone Age. When raised to the status of chief, or the role of chief, Iron Mike essentially acts as the head of your superorganism. Sub Dunbar's number tribes had this natural check on power along with efficiency. I mean, you can compare this to modern governments uh, that don't quite behave as a synergistic uh, organism just because they're so huge or they, the people they preside over are so huge. So they, they have to either sacrifice efficiency for equity, such as a democracy, which, is, which aims to be equal uh, or give people equal rights but are, they're incredibly inefficient, or other governmental systems sacrifice equity for efficiency, such as a dictatorship, right? Not fair at all, but very efficient. These small groups, these groups that were the norm in the Stone Age, they were able to preserve something closer to that of a superorganism that behaved with synergy due to the simplicity 
um, created by a small group that's bonded by social ties through oxytocin rather than uh, future forces. But the problem is, unfortunately, at least uh, when it comes to this, human groups did not stop growing at 150 people. They didn't stop at 50 men, right? Because if you remember the Red Queen theory from the prologue, parasites and host organisms, predators and preys, essentially drove each other to evolve and become increasingly more complex just to keep up with each other. And the same thing happened at the human tribal level. These small sub-Dunbar's number uh, settlements had to band together in order to fend off invaders, thereby consolidating behind a larger perimeter, which we're going to speak about in the next episode on the Bronze Age, because those that didn't were consumed by said invaders, allowing the invading force to get bigger and stronger. So, in fact, the more exposure to violent competition a social group had, the greater the incentive to grow and grow quickly. A settlement frequently exposed to war would evolve as quickly as its available resources would allow. And the more resources it had available, the more likely it would be attacked. And so we can see why certain parts of the world evolved much more quickly than others. Basically, if there's a threat, you had to get big, just like, you know, just like a biological organism in a hostile environment. So tribes grew into villages and then into towns and then into city-states and into later forms of uh, communities that we call nowadays nation-states. As the superorganisms got bigger, so did their perimeters and so did their need to defend those perimeters, uh, their need for organized warriors. And at some point, especially, you know, growing past 150 people, the group becomes much more than one man can protect on his own, right? The, the village champion evolved from chief to king, and he needed to protect through what we would call leadership, right? It's not enough for him to be just a big, bad warrior that can scare people off. That was nice when the group was, say, 100 people, but when you're representing 10,000 people against an invading force of 10,000 people, well, one badass guy quite isn't enough, right? He needs to find a way to mobilize other men, these men who are not natural-born killers, right? The settlements needed some way to get all those men to work together. The king or the government, the leadership, had to find ways for the 98% of men who don't want to kill, who have a natural intense resistance to killing, and figure out some way to get them to kill too. They had to get these men to kill for each other, even when they didn't know each other personally or have anything against their enemies sometimes. However, if our social brains are limited to 150 connections, there had to be some way for these thousands of warriors and hundreds of thousands of citizens to work together as something resembling a superorganism. What brought Homo sapiens out of the Stone Age is the same thing that allowed for the birth of organized warfare, mythology. In the next episode of the History of Man podcast, we enter the Bronze Age. We'll see how the wealth of city-states allowed for massive advancements in weapons technology. We'll see how the first organized militaries created different unit types and battle formations. But we'll also see how the greatest warfighting advancement of the era was not cast in bronze nor drawn on tactical maps. The greatest warfighting innovation occurred in men's minds. Stay tuned for Episode 2, Solid State War, Group Identity in the Bronze Age. <laughs> <laughs>